Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of James, we've been in a series for the last eight weeks called From Talk to Walk. And we've been going verse by verse through the book of James. Today, I'm really excited. My good friend Grant is going to come up here in just a second. Uh, Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon serve as our directors of culture here at Way Church. They are two of the most gifted individuals that I've ever met, but they're also um, two of the highest character uh, most loving individuals that I've ever met. And uh, I got to hear the message in the first service from Grant. Such a timely, timely word. Um, it is theologically deep and it is practically helpful. And uh, he has a gift on his life. So excited for you to hear it. Will you help me welcome my good friend, Grant Skeleton, right now? What up, y'all? Hey, uh, how many of you guys grew up with moms? <laughs> All right, and I just want to see if you're active. Moms that took you to church, or it's with an asterisk. How many of y'all grew up with moms that dragged you to church? Like, you needed to be dragged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, my mom's actually right over here. She's kind of laughing a bit. She dragged all three of my boys, uh, her boys, my brothers, um, to church. I'm the oldest, Luke's the youngest, and then they got another one, Eric, in the middle. And when you get dragged to church, you don't want to be there, but my mom was always active, involved, and um, I always have this story that comes to mind where I'm like, this is why I don't like Christians. And it was when, you know, if you don't know what it's like, not wanting to be there, not really engaging, not really connecting to the gospel. You want the world, honestly, at that season of my life, I want the world more than I wanted God, is I would often sit in the back. Um, sometimes they call them back row Baptist, and I would be that guy in the back. But the worst part is when you have to join small group, uh, because in small group, it's hard. In the back, you can just be on your phone, you could just check out, you could zone out. But when you're in a small group, that's when they go in a circle and they ask questions and you're supposed to share. And it's nerve wracking because you don't want to be there. Then they're like, so what do you think about that verse? But I want to be nice enough to not be mean. But it was this kid who could always tell this guy does not want to be here. He's like a punk. And I would always, every church has that one punk kid that's there a lot. They're like, why do they even come? It's because the mom is dragging them to church. And I was that punk kid. And, um, one day, this kid, Ben, he was the all-star Christian in this church. Um, he was super Christian guy. He was really homeschooled is what he was. was uh, and he, like, but all the parents thought he was amazing. And I remember one day, Ben asked me in the middle of a small group, he was like, Grant, actually, I had a question for you. I'm like, oh, God, great. It's not even the teacher this time asking us. They were the small group leader. It's this guy. And he asked me the question, do you think you're a good person? <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, this is why I don't like Christians. Is, do I think I'm a good person? I'm like, uh, I mean, I'm not as good as you, bro, but I know way worse people than me at my, at my school. And um, he's like, oh, so do you think you're a bad person? I'm like, no, again, because there's way more people that do bad that I think I'm not good like you. I'm not bad. I'm probably kind of in the middle. He's like, how about this then? Would you say maybe you're lukewarm? And me, not knowing the Bible or much about church, I was like, exactly. That's exactly what I am. And I'm thinking, this dude's actually finally helping me. Um, and I say, yes, yes, lukewarm. I'm not hot. I'm not cold. It's a perfect word, lukewarm. <laughs> and he, it's like an evangelist strategy. He's like, got me. 
And he smiled so big. He's like, did you know? He's like, it launched into this whole thing. But did you know in Revelations, it says that if you're, God wants you not to be hot or cold. And if you're lukewarm, he's going to spit you out. And I just never heard that verse before. And again, I was like, this is the moment. I didn't, I thought in that moment, this is why I don't want to be a Christian. (laughs) Like, is because of this. However, the text we're going to go through in James is going to talk about that because we feel that sometimes where it's like that tension of wanting the world or wanting the Lord. But even after we come to Christ, it's crazy how much we could still be tempted by the world, even though we are in the Lord, where we kind of want to live in both worlds. Because I would say I wanted to go to heaven. Um, I didn't want to go to hell. I just didn't want God to the highest degree. I wanted to kind of get by enough to get there but not enough to be like a super Christian, if you will. And so if we turn to James 4, 1, it's going to say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Some of the words, I always look for like themes and what sticks out a lot and what's consistently coming up because it shows you a little bit about what the passage is about. And the thing that stuck out to me the most was there's this kind of these two themes of fighting and quarreling and, and constant like division, but it's based out of this passion and the desire. And as you see, like there's quarrels and there's fights and it's because we have mixed passions and it's causing fights and quarrels among us. Or we're at war because our desires are split. Similar, again, we want the world, we want the Lord. And then there's coveting and fighting and quarrels, again, because we're trying to spend it on our passions. Um, and so the, a visual that may help uh, is this. There's, there's, I want to speak into what I'll call like the war within, which I think is the war between the Lord and a war between the world. Uh, you have to ask yourself, do you want some of one and some of the other, or do you want all of one? Or do you want all of the other? And actually, God would say, like, if you don't know that lukewarm, he wants you to be all in on him. I would say life is so much better if you are. Uh, There is peace. There is joy. There is love. There is patience. There is kindness. That comes from there. In fact, um, I don't think we really think about hell. The worst thing about hell is actually that God's not there. That's the worst part about hell. It's eternity without God, without goodness, without peace, patience, kindness. It's, he is where the joy is, uh, one of my friends, TLC, says. Um, and so here's a, a quote. Actually, I got this lyric from Shy Lin. He was a rapper um, who would say that he, he kind of put a great lyric that show this tension where he said, I've got too much of the Lord in me to enjoy the world, but he said, I also got too much of the world in me to enjoy the Lord. Have any of you guys ever felt that tension, even after your walk with Christ? It kind of sucks. <laughs> it's torture. Like, it's, it's I, one day I feel close to God. The next day I feel far from him. One day the world actually is satisfying a little bit, but then the next day it feels empty. There's diminishing returns that the world gives. And it's, it's this torturous state of, one or the other, and um, I would encourage us to go more towards the Lord, which the the Bible gives a term for this. It actually is called holiness, which really is hinging on the question, how close can I get to God? Uh, We don't really talk about holiness as much. Um, I feel like 
holiness, we, are, we kind of try to confuse holiness or call holiness legalism. And I think that's the trap or the lie of the enemy is, oh, you're trying to be a super Christian. Actually, no, that's just being a Christian. Is I'm trying to get close to God because I think the best of life is being near him. But instead, we'll say, oh, that's like legalistic. You're, you're ta- we, we try to make it like it's a Pharisee type of thing. Well, I would say worldliness, if holiness is how close can I get to God, worldliness, we fall into this trap so often. Where we'll ask this question. How close can I get to the world but still be a believer? That really was, I think, the state of my heart when I was like, man, I want to I be a Christian-ish because I want to go to heaven, but I don't know if I, I really want to go all in. And James is really encouraging us. There's going to be this constant quarrel, this constant fight because your passions are split. Um, he would later call us adulterous because you're here and you say you want this relationship, but then it, clearly you want other relationships as well. Um, that We make compromises in this relationship with God where basically we're saying, I think, Hey, God, I want enough of God to go to heaven, but I don't want enough of God to be transformed. Does this resonate with some of the tension you may walk in? I saw this quote recently by C.S. Lewis. Um, It was about C.S. Lewis. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis quite a bit in this. But uh, it was a quote someone shared, and it was actually C.S. Lewis' assistant, whose name was Walter Hooper. And they asked him after his passing about C.S. Lewis, just what kind of person he was like. Because, uh, you know, you can be seen as something in public, but which I take this so valuable is this is someone who did life with them privately and publicly for many, many years, and that he would say this, I was like, man, this is goals. Is for someone and the closest people to be able to say that he was on a journey and she was on a journey to be this phrase she, he uses, which I'll point out in a second. Well, basically, Walter said, Lewis struck me as the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. Christianity was never to him a separate department of his life. His whole vision of life was such that naturally, uh, that the natural and supernatural seemed inseparably combined. You guys can often will have words for the year. When I heard this a couple months before the end of the year, I was like, man, I want like, which I think is honestly more than a word for a year. It's like a lifelong journey to be thoroughly converted. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not just trying to get to heaven. I want God as much in me as possible. I want like people to feel his presence when they're around. I want, I mean, honestly, I've always thought this because as a, someone who does speaking, there's people that you kind of hear about that were preachers of old, if you will, that they would say things like before they even walked on stage, you could just feel God's presence. We would want to be the kind of people that it's just so obvious God is in us. He's He's before us, he's above us, he's around us, he's to our left, our right, under us, everywhere. He's just all over because we are thoroughly doing the work to bring him into us, that we are thoroughly converted. Um, Not just enough to go to heaven, but enough to be transformed to the deepest ways. Who doesn't want that? Like, we all want that, um, but there is these... the. The struggle, again, the tension within. Um, real quick, I want to I wanna pray, actually. Um, I've come to feel like uh, Samson when he doesn't. I try to pray every sermon, and I actually realize I have not done that. Uh, Samson, it's like cutting my hair uh, for Samson. If I don't pray, I feel like a difference. So if you'll pray with me, I'll pray real quick. We 
God, if we talk about this tension within our hearts and we talk about the weight of sin, God, uh, I pray that your spirit, in a way that only your spirit can do, uh, reveal to us the sin that we put before you, reveal to us the distractions and ultimately idols that we put before you, uh, whatever our thoughts go to regularly uh, that are not of you, that don't honor you. Would your spirit, um, yeah, just reveal to us what is getting us away from you. And then also what's amazing is that you don't only reveal sin and expose sin, you help us get out of the rut of sin. So I pray that your spirit was so evidently through my words and even throughout this week, uh, trigger uh, actionable change and uh, encourage us uh, when we are down. You say that when we are faithless, you are actually faithful. And so would your spirit kind of take away lies or half-truths that the enemy has said to us or we've even adopted and said about ourselves and replace and supplant them with truth that uh, we become a new creation. And so expose to us the sin, but especially give us the strength um, to receive your love and to respond to your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 4 in James 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The words that stick out again for me is friendship and enemy. Enemy. I kind of sometimes, especially in my early walk with God, I'd be like, man, he's kind of intense with how he responds to things. Like, y'all know... When you read Genesis, I don't know if you ever thought about this. I, I think about this a lot in my early faith. It's like I would read Genesis and think, okay, he creates it. It is good. We don't make it but three chapters till it is bad. <laughs> and what did they do? It must have been the worst thing in the world. It must have been terrible because all of, like, the bad in the world, the evil in the world, even sickness, the things that make you, like, that wreck your soul and heart to see brokenness and, and problems and struggle and, and just evil comes from sin, like the sin in Genesis. What terrible, terrible thing have they done? They ate an apple. I was like, I don't know about this, but actually I know about this. I know all y'all been doing worse things than eat an apple. So I'm, as it was a new Christian, I'm like, God, if that's the weight and cost of eating a fruit that you said don't eat, what in the world? We're all doing terrible. Like, yesterday y'all did worse than that, and then eat one fruit he said not to eat. Like, it, it's so weighty, and I feel like, man, the, the consequences for it is all of this separation from you and all the consequences of sin after uh, Genesis 3 is huge. And, and then here he's like, if you just become a friend with that, then you're an enemy to me. Friendship with the world is enmity. Or here is if you become a friend of the world, that clearly makes yourself an enemy of God. And I want to talk about, well, then I think it's showing us there's some real weightiness to sin and what it does between us and our relationship with God. And what we often do is we will... Um, not treat it like sin is weighty. What we'll do is uh, say things like small sins, because that's what most of us do is we're not doing the big, big things, right? Like none of y'all are murdering anyone, right? Why why y'all laughing? (laughs) None of y'all hopefully are in these huge public 
huge consequences everyone sees sins. Most of us are in the work of doing small sins, right? Things that kind of impact a little bit of people around us, maybe the ones closest to us, or we do small sins. We're like, this is really small sin. Some of these things, only I know it's happening, only in my heart or in my mind, and no one's affected. It is a habit, or it is uh, some type of part of my personality. We start justifying it. Kind of like, have y'all seen, we do this a lot with coffee and Enneagram. People will be justifying their, I will call it sinful nature, because they're like, oh, I haven't had coffee yet. And so you're like, okay, so you get to be a jerk? <laughs> or I haven't, uh, I'm an eight, you know, that's just what eights do. I'm like, no, you are a Christian eight. Um, so you don't, I'm an eight, um, and so you don't get to blame these things. But we'll say they're small sins, it's not that big of a de- deal. And I, I want to read another uh, thing from C.S. Lewis. This is from the book, um, from the book, uh, wow. It's uh, the one where he's got the demons in it. Uh, screw tape letters. How many just to get it? Uh, how many have read screw tape letters? Uh, amazing book on temptation. Okay, so I'll explain the book a little bit. C.S. Lewis, who's known for writing Chronicles of Narnia, wrote another fiction book where he wrote an amazing book where it's like almost a flip version of the Bible, where the Bible is like Paul writing to Timothy and teaching him how to be a Christian as well as help other Christians around him. He wrote a book where it's like, what if demons had elder demons, and it's from the elder demon's perspective, writing to a younger demon who's new to being a demon, if you will, and is assigned to a person, and writing, how do you help get that person in temptation? How do you get that person farther from God? How do you get them trapped in their sin? And so it's a unique perspective. For example, one of the things they even do is because it's a demon writing, older demon writing to a younger demon, screw tape, um, then they basically call the enemy is God in their case because they're on the other side. So they, you want to get them away from the enemy referring to God. Um, and so this is one of the quotes that's so interesting when we talk about the way to sin and small sins where we can justify these things is uh, the older uh, demon is talking to him and saying, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Because the older uh, demon is saying, get them to fall into these smaller sins. Get them to do these smaller things. And he's saying, do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, being God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to Edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards or TikTok can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. We think that the enemy is trying to get us to fall into the major big sins that everyone sees and impacts the most amount of people. And really, it may be that the enemy has a stronghold where it's a lot of the smaller sins that don't impact as much people, but you're actually the most impacted by it It, because it's separating you from God. And there is a weight to it. You may say, oh, it's not that intense. I want to ask you... What small sin is edging you away from the light? 
What is it that maybe you've made compromises in? Even in your faith, you've kind of started, you could see there's a pattern of making a compromise in whether it's your posture, your attitude, your, there's places about who you are, what you do, how you carry yourself, where you're like, I've just come to the compromise and accepted this is who I am. And that is separating you from a deeper relationship with God. And I would say, therefore, deeper peace, deeper joy, deeper all the things that God offers, you're compromising on something that is beautiful and huge. And so let me also show you something. This is going to show a little bit of the weight of sin. Uh, it's going to be somewhat of a funny analogy, but it really helps you see the weight from God's angle. Because sometimes, often, we got to reframe thing, things so we see it in a bigger light. And so you may see it as a small sin, but I want you to see it maybe from God's perspective. So, because um, we look at Genesis, and again, see that apple, like, is this that big of a deal? Um, here's some way to kind of see it is a uh, random, random question. Have any of you guys, um, I need crowd participation on this one, ever stepped on or killed um, or smushed an ant. Raise your hand high if you have. Okay, a lot of people. Uh, anyone never done that? Like you, you made a decision. I won't even kill a bug, and it, you've never killed an ant. Anyone? That I, there was no one in last service. Is there anyone here today that is not a murderer? <laughs> no. God, that is crazy. I just did not think that was good. Wayne Church is full of <laughs> redeemed people <laughs> being redeemed. <laughs> Um, God, that is 100% killers. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, okay. I don't want to get stuck on that. It's just hilarious. Um, okay, here's the question then. Let's say, what happened to you? What was the punishment for all y'all when you killed that ant? No punishment. Nothing happened at all. So I'll just say nothing. That's why y'all did it. And that's why you luckily are here. Um, you're not in jail because you just killed an ant. Now, Let's switch it to a different person or a different who. Uh, let's say it's a dog. Uh, yeah, come on. Uh, no, no grace for the ant. Now you guys are already saying awe. <laughs> you guys like all cool with killing these ants. But, man, it's a dog. And I haven't even said what we're going to do, which is, by the way, poison that dog. Um, <laughs> let's say you poison a dog. What is the punishment? <laughs> That's insane. Who's, all right, whoever said straight to jail, were you here last service? Who said straight to jail? Okay, someone just literally last service from this area said straight to jail last time. Uh, so there's only three states where you uh, can go to jail for killing a dog. I thought there would be more. There's not as much dog love at the governmental level, at least. Um, so I looked up. I, this is going to hurt some of y'all dog lovers. You can only get fined uh, for killing a dog. And so you get fined. It is a bigger punishment than the ant. Uh, but what if it was a human? And you poisoned a human instead. What is the punishment? Straight to jail. <laughs> so you go straight to jail. <laughs> and here's what's interesting. Yeah, you, it keeps changing even though it's the same thing. Now, what about the president? Not this president, by the way, because I just don't want to get political and it's election year. Uh, can we just talk about what happens when the people who have historically, uh, we'll say, who have historically assassinated presidents. Does anyone know who's ever done that? What are their names? Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by who? Wait, who said someone else? No, it's John Wilkes Booth. But there's always conspiracy theories, so maybe you know more than we do. Um, all right, what about JFK? Who assassinated him? 
Again, uh, supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald did, <laughs> or the government. <laughs> I'm just playing. I just like the I like the egg things on. I don't even know much about that, but I hear people say that. Um, what's interesting is it's ki- still killing a human, but you get like life in prison for sure, and infamous for the all of life. Like hundreds of years ago was was uh, all these different people that are presidential level, and there's you're known like for all of history. Uh, John Jan- John Wilkes Booth. And here's what I want to point out is the same exact thing happened every single time here is it was murder. These people were murdered. Uh, The who changed, and therefore the punishment changed. This did not change. What happened didn't change, but who it was done against did, and therefore the punishment changed. And I would say in the same way, then, when we commit what we would say um, a small sin, but if it's against the eternal God, then there is eternal punishment. Does that make sense? That you may think it's a small sin, it just happens to be against a big God. You're doing a temporary finite thing against an infinite eternal God. And so even eating an apple or the things you think aren't impacting a lot of people, the God who is omniscient and omnipresent, who knows all things, does see that. It does carve and and edge you away from the light and from a relationship with him. And here's the good news, though, is if that creates is there, sorry, creates an eternal punishment because of the relationship with the eternal God. Then what happens when Jesus, God in the flesh, makes a sacrifice for humanity? Because you guys do know that more people had died on a cross before Jesus did, right? He wasn't the first to die on the cross. He just was the first time God took on flesh and died on the cross on behalf of our sins. Uh, Corinthians says that, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, because it was an eternal God who made that sacrifice, there's an eternal salvation that is offered to each and every one of you guys. That means there's a weight to sin, and it means uh, there's a great lengths at which God went for our sin. So we should take it seriously because he definitely took it seriously. Um, in 1 Corinthians, it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That one sin by Adam had a massive impact on the rest of human history, and that one sacrifice by God made a massive impact on human history. And we're living in light of that sacrifice. Next verse, James 4, 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Jealously is an interesting word. There's a um, quote from the song, He is Jealous for Me. You guys may know that song. Um, I always think of this video uh, whenever I think of the word jealousy because it is interesting to say that God is jealous for us when he's God's character. I'm like, what? Why would he be? Is he insecure? Why is he jealous of us? Or um, I always think of this video. I'll have the team play it whenever I think of this. I verse. happened to be um, sitting in church in my late 20s, and I was going to this church where you had to get there at you know eight o'clock in the morning, or you couldn't get a seat. And a very uh, charismatic minister, and everybody was just you know into the sermon. 
and uh, this great uh, minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything and then he said and the Lord thy God is a jealous God and I was you know caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous and something struck me just and I was like uh, I think about 27 or 28 I was thinking God is all God is omnipresent God is all and God's also jealous jealous God is jealous of me um, and something about that didn't didn't feel right in my spirit. I happen to be. Um, I want to clear that up in that God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. He's placed in you this spirit that he went to great lengths to get there. And he's jealous for you and what he's offering and what you're settling for. You have nothing that he needs. You cannot find in all your life anything that he doesn't already have access to. He's definitely not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. In the same way, an amazing husband who marries an amazing wife, is there's, of course, a jealousy because there's a covenant relationship between the two. Also, human jealousy is when you want something that someone else has that doesn't belong to you. But when you enter into a marriage, you become one, and so you belong to each other. This is not what we're thinking. He's not insecure, so insecure that he's jealous for you. He loves you so much that he wants more for you than you often want for yourself. We compromise, and therefore we settle for so much less. Um, I think of a verse by Randy Alcorn, he or a quote by Randy Alcorn. He says, um, I'm actually got to pull it up. I just want to make sure I say this right. Uh, he says, that is interesting uh, t time to have a, <laughs> like, what are you supposed to be? Take your pills, man. Um, <laughs> when my thirst for joy is satisfied by Christ, sin becomes unattractive. He wants you to have so much joy and your thirst for joy is so satisfied in Christ that sin becomes unattractive. Settling becomes unattractive. You, people that have and have taken on the eternal water, they're not going to be thirsty for something lesser, especially muddied water, dirty water. Um, lastly, I mean, a couple of verses around this too. Uh, I'm a jealous, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. It's just, it's different than what we've seen. Um, and this isn't the first time it comes up in Exodus. This is in the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so what are you bowing down? What are you compromising? What small or big things are you allowing to separate you from the love of God? Um, Tim Keller says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. I know this is weighty. I want to talk about the links God went um, because he doesn't want separation. He wants as much closeness. He wants like, I, I kind of see it as if the Holy Spirit's in us, we want the fullness of him. Like this is what I loved about uh, the, the verse that um, is in the lyric of the song is like, there's a lion in our lungs. Like he's placed that in us. And let me show you links he went to to do that because um, he 
basically like we're we're not all there's been different relationships with God over human history I'm not saying it's the same God but there's been certain ways we get to connect with him and I think we're in one of the best times but we're not always tapping into that advantage that we have for example in the garden we've talked a lot about that today is the garden got to be man and God like they got to walk with him talk with him potentially even touch him which was not the case in the Old Testament but that was when it was God and us like humankind Adam and Eve and God actually got to do life in the garden together then it was the Old Testament because of sin it went from God and us to God for us um this is where God then sent, because it's not God telling us and talking to us anymore. It's, it's God using messengers, whether it's judges or prophets and sometimes even kings. He's giving guidance and direction. But because sin separated us, we were no longer walking with God in, like, right there in person. It went from God and us to God for us. Then there's the New Testament. Can you guys tell me, we, we often quote this in Christmas, what does Emmanuel stand for? It went from God and us to God for us and then to God with us. I said this last time, I'm just going to keep saying it. This is what makes our faith different than other religions. Every other religion has this God at the top they think there's this analogy people always use we're like i believe in this god you believe in that god but at the end of the day we climb our mountain and we get to god at the top and it's all the same anyway you do your thing and your truth be your truth my truth be my truth that's not the case with jesus says through me i am the door like i am the way to life but one of the biggest differences of our god is that our god comes down takes on flesh and it says, you can't get up here. You can't do all the work. I, I have direction and guidance. You can't know whether, whatever it is, like you might be exhausted and you'll never make it up. I took on flesh and I will carry you there. I offer this to you. And it's God with us. Now we live after the cross. And I would say we get the Holy Spirit, which is where Again, this verse points out the spirit that he has made to dwell in us and is now God in us. Several other verses. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. 2 Timothy 1.14, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure, he's a treasure in us. He yearns for us to have more of him, which is a treasure, which has been entrusted to you. Even Jesus' last words, we always talk about the Great Commission, where he's like, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think we don't give enough credit. His literal last words to before his ascension was after that great commission actually was the last words were and behold I am with you always even until the end of the age he's in us he's offered to be in us and he yearns for you to receive all of him in there um, 
C.S. Lewis has this amazing quote where he talks about God joining us and coming into our life where he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house and at first perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. Some of you guys are at this point in your faith where he's getting past that point and now he's here where presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It just does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you've thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I think the proper response James gives us in God offering, um, I yearn to all of you. I've gone through great lengths and there's such weight to sin. I want, the, I want you to have the greatest joy I don't want you to fall into flirting with all these other things that you think might satisfy. I want sin to be so unattractive. And James says in James 4, 6, 8, how do we respond? Is says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you feel like you have compromised over and over and over again, maybe even accepted this is just who you are, this is where you are, this is how it's always going to be, one, I want to give you grace that Jesus himself walked with disciples that messed up all the time. Like, those dudes were some punks, too. They were, in the, they were like punks in the small group in some ways. Like, like, James and John asked for the left hand and the right hand of the Father, and they haven't even barely done anything. And then they asked their, their mom gets involved and asks Jesus, like, you got to remember, they cut a dude's ear off one time. That's not the best evangelistic strategy. Um, these guys did over and over and over again. They failed. And again, the Bible says, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. So I don't want this text to beat us up. I want it to expose sin, but I want you to know the spirit in you. You have a lion inside those lungs, so get up and praise the Lord. That's what it says. You have a lion inside your lungs. The God in creator, the line of Judah is in you. You are not a victim in your sin. You do not have to be stuck in sin. You don't have to be a part of a rut. You don't have to blame your family. You don't have to look at your past. You don't have to compare it to everyone else's situation. You have a lion in you, the Holy Spirit, who can get you up. And even if you fail, the Bible says you can fall over and over. You can fall, the righteous fall seven times and the Holy Spirit will not allow them to stay there. They will get back up. Amen. And so what I want to tell you is, yes, we have got to resist the devil. And we need to draw near to God. These are, these are like promises. He's saying, if you resist the devil, he will flee. And if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. These are promises. Um, you, I think, Anita, I would say, 
leave any type of state or posture, which we can sometimes fall into, where we just accept our situation. And I want to tell you, make war. You need to make war with sin. So often we get taught most of Christianity about how to love God. And I'm telling you, you also need to learn how to hate sin. You will see that in the Bible a lot. God hates sin because sin separates you and him. So you got to hate sin. If all you do is love God, but you don't hate sin, you're going to treat things like small sins. Another way to say it is you don't need to just starve the flesh. You need to feed the spirit. How are you starving your flesh? And also, how are you feeding your spirit? Um, the Bible tells us, um, all right, here's a couple of reminders of going into war, is you don't go into war alone. A couple of things that are great about going to war and this idea of going to war, which, by the way, there's maybe a reason why when the Bible talks about, like, armor, these are, like, military war-like things when he's talking about giving us helmets and, and swords and all this. Like, there is a wartime mentality because when you go to war, uh, you're more alert. You're serious. You don't take things lightly. You also don't go to war alone. Like, there's not, when we have a war, a whole bunch of isolated soldiers and the thousands or the millions that go and fight battles in isolation, but together. No, they collectively work together as a team. The camaraderie of the military, like, there's a bond between them. And I want to see the same thing here is, are you leading in vulnerability to invite others in? Because we're starting small groups. We have our groups. I think one of the best things, when someone leads vulnerably and opens that door, it opens the door for everybody else. And if you lead in that in the beginning now, you're going to have, one, people that love you and help you, but also a God that's invited in. Um, in fact, we look at James, this is we'll get into later, in, is confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is a little bit of conjecture, but I want to just point this out because I don't know if you've been in this situation. I know I have. Is sometimes and often we want to do these battles and take on our sin alone. Or at best, we'll be like, hey, God, can we work on this? And I keep coming to you with this, God. Why are you not helping me with this? But I want to ask you, how often have you gone to God with certain things you want to change about you or you know you got to get rid of compared to how many times you've gone to others? Like, how much are you also confessing this? Because I think we get forgiveness from God, but it's telling us to confess to others. And often we just keep confessing to God, who, by the way, already knows he's omniscient. But we want to solve our issues and solve our sin in isolation. And I, you may feel so frustrated and stuck, but it might be because you're not inviting other people's in. You're going to war alone. And my question for you would be, um, who are you going to battle with and who have you invited in? Because forgiveness, I think, comes from God, but healing comes in community. Who's praying for you? Because the, pray the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and it's working. And so I'll just close with this question. I do want to give you guys like a minute and a half if you guys can just think through this and talk to your neighbor as we close is, who are you inviting in? And if you don't have someone, is there someone who comes to mind that the Spirit prompts? You don't need to confess everything to everyone, but you do need to confess some things to someone. Who is that someone for you? 
and talk to your neighbor. You don't have to say what it is, or maybe that person is the person you can talk to. But I just want you to have a plan because it really comes down to how and when. We cannot do this in isolation. The Spirit of God will help you. And this is a church that wants to, yearns jealously for you to have the most joy in God. Turn to your neighbor and talk to them for a minute and then.